A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. It's late Friday afternoon. It's about 13 minutes to 6. It's December the 27th, 1974. The sizzle of the chip pan emanates from the kitchen. Your mates are outside trying to pull wheelies on their still new rally choppers, beckoning you to come out and join them. But they can fuck off for now, because we're in the final stretch of the last Top of the Pops episode of 1974, and the last few minutes of the golden age of T.O.T.P. Hey up, you pop-crazed youngsters, and welcome to the final part of Chop music number 69 i'm al needham they're david stubbs and taylor parks and we are rejoining the episode in progress what an amazing piece of music queen for you there and killer queen well as my part for road safety in 75 i invented this trafficator hat you see left and right and i think it's only fair to go from a flasher to a streaker. Here it comes. Boogity, boogity. There it goes. Boogity, boogity. And he ain't wearing no clothes. Oh, yes, they call him the streak. Travis, now brandishing four microphones and a remote control button and a microphone cover on the index finger of the other hand, as well as wearing a bowler hat with indicators on each corner, tells her that... It, I can't even be bothered to fucking describe this, man. <laughs> Tells us that he's doing his bit for road safety in 1975 by inventing a trafficator hat, which is a piss-poor way of introducing the streak by Ray Stevens. Oh, fucking hell, man. The bits are just piling atop each other. Yeah. What's the yeah. point, man? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you just wonder, you know, did they have to have a team of, like, people come in, you know, sort of Cambridge Footlights graduates and people like that to help cobble together all these bits? Or did they honestly think the two atoms of wit that they had between them, you know, Edmonds and Travis, was enough to rustle up something usable? It's just mm. awful. I mean, who was their target? Or, you know, did they sort of run it by, you know, nervous secretaries or, you know, people in a typing pool or whatever? I mean, you know, who kind of gave them the idea that anything of this was remotely funny. I know. Or even zany. We've not really brought this up or hammered away at it, but, you know, this is on at Friday tea time. This is in the Cracker Jack slot, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even I, as a six-year-old, would have thought this was massively childish and pointless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Born in Clarksdale, Georgia, in 1939, Harold Ragsdale formed a band at high school called The Barons and signed to Capitol Records after graduating from college. 
He spent the 60s writing and recording minor novelty hits such as Jeremiah Peabody's polyunsaturated, quick-dissolving, fast-acting, pleasant-tasting green and purple pills, Ahab the Arab, which was later covered by Jingle Nonce, Mm. Harry the Hairy Ape, and Guitarzan. By the end of the decade, he was a regular guest on The Andy Williams Show in America, which led him to be signed to Williams' label Barnaby in 1970. And his next single, Everything is Beautiful, got to number one on the Billboard charts and made it to number six over here in June of that year. A year later, he did even better when Bridget the Midget, the Queen of the Blues, got to number two in the UK for three weeks in April of 1971, held off number one by Hot Rex. After the hits dried up over here and diminishing returns set in over there, he found himself on a plane in December of 1973 flicking through an issue of Time magazine and his eyes alighted on a letter from a student at Colton College in Minnesota about the newly created winter tradition of running about like a bastard through the snow in the nip which was spreading across campuses all around the states. He immediately started to hammer out a song on the plane, which was left unfinished. But a few months later, when the newspapers suddenly became full of it, and over a dozen singles about the phenomena had already been released, he dug out his notes, finished it off, and it was released in February of 1974. A few days after it came out, streaking reached its peak in America when Robert Opal, a former speechwriter for Ronald Reagan who was working as an English language teacher in Los Angeles, managed to get backstage at that year's Oscars by pretending to be a journalist, cut through the backstage curtain and ran bollock naked past that year's presenter David Niven. And the publicity ramped up the airplay of the single and got it to number one on the Billboard chart for three weeks in May. It was then put out over here as the follow-up to Love Me Longer, which did note enter the chart at number 40 during the British variant of the streaking outbreak, mainly at football matches and soared 27 places to number 13. He was immediately catapulted over the Atlantic to make an appearance on Top of the Pops, which helped it soar to number four, and a week later, it waved its musical cock at the Rubettes and scared them off the summit of Mount Pop, denying <laughs> Hey Rock and Roll by Show Waddy Waddy its moment at the top. And here is a repeat of his studio performance. And chaps, here's the novelty song of 1974, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I think this is my favourite Ray Stevens song. I mm. think this will almost certainly have made it onto the best of Ray Stevens. Yes. Mm. Uh, possibly later reissued as the best of Ray Stevens featuring The Streak. Mm. Not available in any shops except no. Woolworths. <laughs> yes. Mm. Mm. You see, I, I know an element of uh, the sardonic in what Taylor said there, but um, <laughs> I genuinely did, like, look, at the time, I genuinely did like this. Now, the thing is, I mean, I was acquainted with Ray Stevens also. You mentioned Everything is Beautiful, which was played every yeah. bloody 30 minutes on Radio 2, which unfortunately was the family yes. default station on the old radio. <laughs> and, you know, and it was just, everything is beautiful. And it's just like, look, mate, I live in Leeds. Everything is not fucking well beautiful. Like, 
I can tell you. <laughs> um, so, you know, I was a bit sceptical from that. But I, I love this, and I think I, I love it in every respect. I mean, I think part of it, right. well, there are various reasons. Um, one is it brightened up. I was having a miserable um, summer holiday in, in uh, Triada Bay in Anglesey in this kind of Transylvanian-type hotel on the seafront, you know, horrible place, <laughs> you know. And it helped brighten up that. There are various things. I think it was hearing boogity, boogity. I'd never heard anybody say boogity, boogity. And it was like having no. chewing gum for the first time, bubble gum for the first time, you know. Proper chewing gum as well, hubba bubba. Yeah, exactly. Big, thick explosions of flavour for three seconds. Exactly, yeah. So there was that element of, like, Americana about it. And, of course, in 1974, yes. America might as well have been on the moon, basically. Might as well be Spain. Yeah. Because you had all of that going on, you know. Plus, obviously, the self-evident hilarity of the spoken word bits, you know. Or on Apple, you know. Mm. I was absolutely taken. I was absolutely smitten. You were 12. I was six. I mean, as a six-year-old, no, there's nothing funnier the nakedness oh totally tackle out yeah i've already mentioned that documentary that the bbc ran about uh, a nudist camp mm. tears falling on my sabutio pitch <laughs> while i was watching mm. it mm. but yeah even at 12 it's still funny isn't it mm. oh totally yeah other people's cocks are just hilarious that's right yeah i mean one's own is no laughing matter but other people's oh, no. hilarious definitely yeah 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 just imagine you just yeah. sat there pointing at the screen going he ain't wearing no clothes Yes. <laughs> Sadly, he is though, isn't he? He's just got this suit on, and you, mm. you're sitting there watching it. Well, he's got, well, he's he's got to take that suit off at some point and run about bollock naked after Dave Lee Travis. Yeah, give him a taste of uh, what he's been dishing out. <laughs> oh god, you just put me in mind of one of the ways in which DLT could have contributed to this performance. Oh, oh. god, yes, <laughs> yes. Oh, for fuck's sake, absolutely, yes. yeah. Although yeah. the really terrible thing here, of course, is that if an actual streaker had burst into the studio and onto the stage and mm. knocked Ray Stevens' hat off, and mm. you could guarantee you would have been forced to the ground by BBC security, knee mm. in the yeah. back, you know, frog marched yes. into the car park. Yeah, with a hat over his groin. Like that copper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah commissioner's peak cap. Yeah, held over. Ray Stevens applauding as he's led mm. away. Yeah, sell out. I bet you. If Travis actually did decide to get all his kit off and run bollock naked around the stage, do you think Edmonds would take it upon himself to bring him down, <laughs> or would he just run off like a bitch? What rugby tackle him? Yeah, I think he might produce. I mean, they've always got a sort of plastic policeman's helmet at hand, didn't they? You know, well, I suppose mm. that was later on they needed one whenever the police came on, didn't they? You know, yes. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> it's Sting. You know, so they might. Yeah, I think that's probably what they've done. He'd have like you know called for a minion to sort of grab a helmet from the props cupboard mm. and chased after him with that. Yeah, it'd be like Steve Austin against Andre the Giant as Bigfoot in the Six Million Dollar. <laughs> Thrilling television. Just perhaps with a view to kind of you know covering his knackers, basically. Yeah, I don't know. Knowing Edmonds, I think he's more likely to reach into the inside pocket of his suit, pull out a little walkie-talkie and just mutter darkly into it. And the next thing you know, eight goons appear. (laughs) But here's a rare chance to see some actual kids in the studio in this episode. And, uh, oh dear. Yeah. They look well fucking Brentford nylons, don't Mm. they? It's fair to say the audience respond in muted fashion. It's very much like a Belgian pop TV audience, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like when two-man sounder on and uh, poor old Lou de Prix in his sailor suit jaggering it up and giving his all. 
and fucking peepoos just fire on the bongos <laughs> and they're just looking as if a frog's been dissected yeah, mm. it's like a who can look the most appalled competition you know mm. their cool rests on this yeah again it always amazes me how they managed to find the kids that are the least excited about pop in the 70s and you know yes. managed to get them like front and center you know as if they're disappointed yeah. that it's not top of the form or something yeah even ray stevens isn't enough to get him going got, <laughs> no, no. there's a there's one young lady who looks pretty unimpressed but continues to jig up and down a bit there's a couple yeah, there's of, a lot of bobbing up and down yeah. yeah there's some mild smirks in there um mm. there's a couple of stone-faced non-movers there's a few who look like they haven't really noticed anything different it's just there's some music playing somewhere so they're sort of bopping about to it you know whatever it is isn't really their concern let's just get through this and back home to a new english library paperback you know <laughs> skinhead goes skiing <laughs> It doesn't help that the song is being performed without its usual gales of canned laughter that Ray thoughtfully provided on the single. <laughs> and, and the problem is as well, he's talking gibberish half the time. I mean, fucking snow cone, mm. basketball playoff, what's he going on about? Mm. Is that drugs? Mm. Yeah. Well, it's one of those records made by and for Americans. Yeah. And if any other suckers are dumb enough to bite, he'll go there and he'll do it for them if they pay. But he's yeah. not going to worry too much about. He's not going to give a TED talk, is there? No, it's, <laughs> him doing this <laughs> no. in Britain is like British groups going and playing in Japan. You know, mm. they're pleased to be there, but it doesn't worry them much whether anyone can understand what they're singing about. Mm. Certainly not mm. to the point of trying to do anything about it. Mm. But Americans are like this. You remember when that film Hancock came out with Will Smith in it, right? Now. Right. I know that most Tony Hancock fans are now dead, and I know they basically have never been any in America, but fuck you, he's still one of the all-time greats, and that's his mm. name. Mm. And nobody yeah. would go to America and try and sell them a film about some character called Jerry Lewis, mm. just because no. nobody in Britain gives a toss about Jerry Lewis the comedian. No. And expect them not to care or not to be confused. Just the arrogance to do that would be appalling. Mm. Yeah. As well as commercially stupid, you know. But it doesn't work both ways, you know. Mm. And a lot of no. a lot of Americans are Anglophiles and love specific British stuff, you know, the less mm. American the better. Even no one American who listens to Sleaford mods and can sort of follow it with the help of Google. <laughs> but that's not the same as the big country bearing down on you, is it? Expecting no. you to just understand its stupid words, because, you know... I mean, I didn't mind at all, far from it, that I couldn't understand all the American bits. That actually made right. it all the better. As indeed, you know, right. for the pop kids, you know, as evidenced by its its number one status, etc. <laughs> mm. yeah, how wonderful must a snow cone... A snow cone? Great. Don't know what it is. It like sounds it. American, and therefore it's great. Yeah. Yeah, this would last all the way through to the mid-90s when 7-Eleven started popping up everywhere and you could go in and buy a bar of her share mm. and find out it tasted a desiccated <laughs> cat shit. Yeah. But yeah, this song, it's, it doesn't help that Ray takes far too long to put his hat on to do his redneck voice, which it holds the song up so such, long. Yeah, the fumbling is terrible. Awful. <laughs> this would have been, you know, a laugh riot back in the summer, but it's it's December now, mate. It's a, it's a six-month-old joke that's just worn off. Mm. If you're not going to get your cock out, just go. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I suppose the one thing you can say is that this is an ideal track for cutting a montage mm. of uh, Erica Rowe 
and hmm. yeah. yeah that bearded bloke with a police helmet over his bollocks and yeah. perfect to listen to on your orange foam walkman headphones while hurdling the stumps um (laughs) (laughs) other than that there's not a lot of use for it is there really no what is the defining characteristic of streakers by the way do you Mm. think because i've never quite understood it Mm. the obvious psychological explanations for it don't really hold up when you look closely you know what Uh. i mean obviously these people are exhibitionists of a sort but presumably not in an erotic way because there are far sexier and less illegal ways to satisfy that craving if you have it, even in 1974. Mm. Yeah. And although the the footage and the photos of, of male streakers tend to be censored, it's pretty obvious from the location of the black bars that yes. <laughs> these men are not aroused by their mm. exposure, at least not at the time. And they don't necessarily have anything astonishing to show off. Mm. And... You think there'd be some kind of psychosexual component in a woman stripping nude and running around in front of a, say, you know, a, like a testosterone frothing crowd at Twickenham or something, you know. Mm. But when you see them, it's just carefree smiling and waving. You know yeah. what I mean? Like they think of themselves as cheerleaders taken to a logical conclusion. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it's part of the show. So I don't get it. I'm, I, it must be an act of regressive desperation like yeah. a child getting his bum out you know and mm. cackling at the adults looking shocked you, know yeah. I mean? you lose your sense of humanity in modern society so they tell me so mm. what better way to refresh that than what, what indeed breaking the lines you know of a controlled and ritualized gathering mm. yeah i suppose i've never done it or even thought about doing it and you know me I, yeah. I used to get my cock out for money on a very regular basis yeah for money yeah not for free in a controlled environment i've never streaked myself i don't understand the psychology of it the nearest who got to it in my family is my younger brother tony who right. was at the, he'd got he'd had a few lotions and this was at the um, a test match it was at headingley oh, up in no. leeds and uh, it was england australia whatever and it was kind of being kind of half dead you know he wanted to sort of do a little pitch invasion and he did right. he sort of pitched he was right at the front and he kind of I don't know he was just impelled and he pitched over and thought oh well fucking hell I might as well do it now you know races across the pitch past the wicket you know they're all standing there looking at him and he feels he's, he's sprinting along trying to get to the other end you know he's, he's, he thinks he better say something so he just shouts me house is on fire and then he's <laughs> <laughs> carries on and eventually gets to the other end and uh, you know once he's scooped up you know once he's reached you know the, uh, the, the other boundary and he says actually the police were pretty complimentary about it so, you know there's security you know obviously they had to sort of fush him out of the places you know what lad you're the first person that's ever made it across all way nice one lad you know well played Tony yeah yeah definitely yeah yeah so the streak would last only one week at number one when Gary Glitter chased it off the follow-up the Moonlight Special failed to chart but he roared back a year later with a country tinged cover of the Errol Gardner standard Mister, which got to number two in July of 1975 kept off the top by Tears on My Pillar by Johnny Nash I don't mind that at all man that gives off very fond memories of hearing that on Radio 2 mm. meanwhile Robert Opal cashed in on his Oscars fame by launching a presidential bid in 1976 and then opening a homoerotic art gallery in San Francisco in 1978 becoming one of the first in America to exhibit the work of Tom of Finland Ooh. alas he was murdered in a botched robbery attempt in 1979 is that you Ethel where do you think you're going you get your clothes on 
shameless hussy. Say it isn't so, and Voices and characters are Ray Stevens in the number one sound of the street. Would we pull a cracker, cracker. lad? Oh, go have a look inside. Did you get the motto? I got the motto. What is small and noisy? What is small and noisy? It's got to be Susie Quattro, hasn't it? starts to introduce the streak when he's interrupted again by Travis running around him in a circle. After pulling a cracker, they read out the joke, which uh, I can't be fucking bothered to explain it. It's mm. Devilgate Drive by Susie Quattro, everyone. Mm. Yeah. We've dealt with Susie Quattro a couple of times now, and this single, the follow-up to Daytona Demon, which got to number 14 in November of 1973, was a stopgap release between her debut LP, Susie Quattro, and her next one, Quattro. <laughs> it was featured on Top of the Pops before it was even released, and when it did, it became the highest new entry at number 14 in the first week of February. Then it soared to number two, and a week later, it dislodged Tiger Feet by Mud, another Chinny Chap single, to become a second number one after Can the Can. And here's a repeat of an earlier Top of the Pops performance. And also, it's the last chance, I believe, to see that huge green screen background that Top of the Pops were so keen on in the early 70s, which flares and pulses as Susie's band mm, worship yeah, her yeah. bass as she holds it aloft. Mm, yeah. Oh, it's lovely. And fucking hell, from the back, Susie Quattro's band look just like Supergrass, don't they? <laughs> I like the bloke um, on piano who looks like a mad Roger Waters, or mm. rather, an even more obviously mad Roger Waters, <laughs> who comes out from behind the piano and starts dancing around yes. crazily mm. in the floor. Oh, yeah, the little dance really routine. Looks like a cartoon of the young Roger Waters drawn by the bloke who did Felix the Cat. <laughs> the best thing about this clip. And it's prefiguring imagination, really. Yes. Like the keyboard player and the drummer come out front and do a mm. dance, even as their instruments continue to play. It's good. <laughs> mm. Well, I think there was a sort of, and you can see this quite a few times in this episode, that, you know, no one's allowed to kind of go all virtuoso and go off on twaddly guitar solos because, you know, it's not the old grey whistle test, it's top of the pops. No. So you've got this alternative form of virtuosity, which is being able to high kick as you're playing, you know, or you kneel yes. down as you're playing or swivel around Hank Marvin way, you know, and that, that's a sort of a sort of top of the pops form of guitar virtuosity. Would have appealed to me massively at the time mm. that piano's playing itself oh. <laughs> i thought this was the best song actually i mean I, you know I, the thing is about susie quattro is much what i was saying earlier on you know about sort of queerness and the glam types or whatever mm. similar attitude towards susie quattro you know yeah it was great but it didn't make me a feminist in any way you know this was great yeah this you know got people's backs or whatever but girls were still crap you know girls were just mm. as bad as george best still you know they would wore frilly knickers and a bra well yes. not bras not the one i knew but certainly you know, probably fruity knickers, you know, so it didn't mm. make me any less of a sort of young misogynist. I, I do believe you'll find, David, it was a Playtex bra. Well, yeah. Mm. <laughs> of course, cross your heart, yes. But the bra was too big and he also mm. wore a wig and that was why he was known mm. as a sexy P. 
pig. <laughs> oh, he had a busy life, didn't I? Do, do you remember that time that he skidded off his Yamaha and banged his bollocks on a dustbin lid? <laughs> no wonder he had to retire at 27. Mm. <laughs> mm. I mean, obviously, you know, it was just one of these passing novelties, a woman fronting a pop group, you know, it was just like sparks or whatever, you know, just a yeah. passing fad and heteronormative service would be resumed as soon as possible. Yeah, Hitler, a woman. <laughs> but anyway, Chris France says that because um, Tina Weymouth was very reluctant to sort of join Talking Heads, mm. I sort of think it was a bit unseemly. But one of the things, one of the ways he got to play the bass was actually to get to listen to Susie Quattro. Right. So Susie Quattro begets Talking Heads. Is this the last ever glam number one single, chaps? Mm. Because Always Yours came after this, but that's a bit more mock and roll, isn't it? Yeah, it could be. I mean, there is an element here of uh, last tucky in the shop. <laughs> I was going to say I really like the early Susie Quattro records, or the only Susie Quattro records, but really it's only Can the Can that is so good mm. that it makes Len Tucky seem like a dude, you know. Yeah. Because the other decent ones are basically Can the Can, but less exciting and mm. dramatic, you know. And she is not the only early 70s pop act whose records sounded broadly similar, but one was clearly better than all the others mm. at doing the same thing. Yeah. I mean, there's... At least two or three others on this program but i don't know i think the susie quattro formula was a little bit more limited because there's no weirdness or depth mm. it's just hannah barbera boogie um yeah. with mm. a good production you know so it seems like there's more of a drop-off even though this is still a good record in itself but it's no high 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 by wings no. hard as it's trying <laughs> There's more kids in this clip, but this time they're fucking well into it, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, you see them off to the side, just frugging away like bastards. They love it. Yeah. Mm. Well, she was very popular, Susie Quattro, mm. which I, I don't know, despite everything, I find it sort of hard to warm to her, really. Right. She's the Barbara Windsor of America. You know, <laughs> like small, cheeky, right wing, taste for brutes. Uh, scrappy do energy mm. Uh, mm. fancied by maladjusted reactionaries and overgrown conquers champions <laughs> i just can't really get with it somehow but that's retrospective i guess you know i mean at the time you know i didn't really wasn't aware of her politics or her personal unpleasantness uh, which one or two people are reported on and all that oh. kind of stuff oh no she'd be a fire-breathing mini minx at the time yeah definitely sure. yeah 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 yes. but, i mean the only memory that this triggers for me once i was doing the melody maker letters page right and somebody had written us a letter about something or other and for some reason it mentioned halfway through that the letter writer used to live next door to Susie Quattro Fuck. so I published the letter and then at the end I tampered with the address so that instead of <laughs> saying Steve Jackson Chelmsford it said Steve Jackson Devil Great Drive <laughs> which I found really funny for no good reason <laughs> and they say I got a raw deal I deserve penniless obscure <laughs> with a fucking track record like that anything else to say about this yeah isn't it sad by the 80s she was reduced to selling her piss as a soft drink <laughs> yeah, that's what i always assumed that stuff was anyway and if you think it wasn't prove it <laughs> so devil gate drive was spent two weeks at number one before giving way to jealous mind by alvin stardust and the follow-up too big got to number 14 in july 
She'd rally somewhat in November when The Wild One got to number seven, but her next single, Your Mother Wouldn't Like Me, would only get to number 31 in February of 1975. And sadly, diminishing return set in with her third LP, the non-more 70s titled Agro-Phobia, failing to chart. What a fucking title that is. <laughs> yeah. She returned to America in 1978 to play Leather Tuscadero in Happy Days for a couple of series and musically changed tack in 1978 with a softer rock approach and got to number four for three weeks with If You Can't Give Me Love in April of that year. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. and extremely noisy that's Susie Quattro and Devilgate Drive down in the silver jungle something stirred which is not bad considering the sugar shortage it was Carl Douglas and with his kung flu and a nasty cough Edmund suddenly pops his head out of the forest of silvery Christmas trees and does a shit impression of Wolfgang, the German played by Artie Johnson in Rowan and Martin's Laughing, and then pulls down his suit trousers, squats on the floor, and shits out an appalling introduction for Kung Fu Fighting by Carl Douglas. Born in Kingston, Jamaica in 1942, Carlton Douglas was relocated to California to live with extended relatives in his teens before joining his family in East Dulwich. While he was serving an engineering apprenticeship and was still nursing the ambition to be the first ever black player for Tottenham Hotspur, he attended a dance at the local amateur football club that he played for and ran into a band who were playing that night. Sounds five. After being egged on by his mates to join the band on stage and singing Tutti Frutti and Long Tall Sally, he was invited to join them full-time. Changing their name to Carl Douglas and the Chalmers, they spent the next six months tearing up the South London beat combo circuit. 
After getting interest from assorted small local labels, they recorded a demo and changed their name to the Cole Douglas set. But the only offer they got was from Strike Records, who just wanted Cole and put out the single Crazy Feeling, featuring Big Jim Sullivan on guitar and John Paul Jones on bass, but it only got to number 56, even though it was voted a hit on Jukebox Jury. Returning back to the Cole Douglas set, who had now changed their name to Cole Douglas and the Big Stampede, he spent the late 60s supporting Cream, Ike and Tina Turner, The Move, Curtis Mayfield, the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band and Jimi Hendrix, who joined them on stage for a few songs. In 1968, the band gave up and Douglas signed a solo deal with United Artists, putting out the single Serving a Sentence of Life, which failed to chart. As did all the other singles over the next six years when he bounced to Polydor, to Buddha, to CBS, to Blue Mountain, to Youngblood International. Earlier this year, though, Bidu Apaya, who was born in Bangalore in 1944 and relocated to London in 1967 with the intention of becoming a singer, but ended up working for Pie Records as a producer, was lined up to produce a song written by Larry Weiss, who had already written Rhinestone Cowboy, Ben Meshapemeh and Hi-Ho Silver Lining, and was looking for a singer. Remembering the man he had worked with on a black exploitation soundtrack a few years earlier, he summoned Douglas to the studio. When Douglas arrived, he was told by Apaya that he hadn't even thought of a B-side yet, needed something that very day, and asked him if he had any lyrics and eh. When Douglas produced his notebook, Bidu was struck by something Douglas had written about Chinese lads kicking each other in the face and worked <laughs> something up on the spot. After taking two and a half hours of a three-hour session to nail the A-side with a tea break thrown in, Douglas was given ten minutes and two takes to get the B-side done, which was then massively over-egged in post-production by Bidu with lashings of wah and hoo and the Oriental <laughs> riff, because it was only a B-side and who the fuck was going to listen to it anyway. When Pi took delivery of the single, to the astonishment of everyone involved, they insisted that Kung Fu fighting had to be the A-side in order to capitalise on the tsunami of interest in martial arts that had swept the playgrounds of Britain, and they released it in the summer of 1974, where it did precisely fuck all and got zero radio airplay. But the phoenix can fly only when its feathers are grown, and it spread through the clubs and discos like a bastard, and finally entered the chart at number 42 in mid-August. The following week, as nimble as the tiger, it soared 13 places to number 29, but Top of the Pops were far too busy concentrating on the finger of mud in the Osmonds to contemplate the heavenly glory of kung fu fighting. But when it soared another 20 places to number 9, the nature of Carl Douglas was irrepressible, <laughs> and he was finally allowed on for an astonishing display of chinese letter pyjama-suited funk <laughs> and three weeks later it scaled the summit of pop mountain confronted love me for a reason by the osmonds and shouted stupid fool you're forcing me to kill you <laughs> and here he is back in the studio readying himself 
resolved to face off in a monumental battle against the 36th chamber of the Top of the Pops Orchestra. <laughs> Fucking hell. Where do we start with this, chaps? Oh, yeah. I know that people are going on about the specials and Ghost Town mm. at the moment. And, and let me say on behalf of all of Char Music, thank you, Terry Hall. Yes. And Pop Craze Youngsters, you really need to read Neil's piece on him and the quietest. Yeah. But I'm sorry, because for me, this is the ultimate right place, right time, perfect number mm. one of all time. I fucking love it, man. Yeah. It's interesting that I think that, once again, sitcom and um, pop were in this kind of cultural alignment, because around this time we would have had the Steptoe and Son episode, the Seven Steptoe Ride. Yes! The old man and all his geezer mates. Yeah, they they see off Frankie Barrow with a few kind of kung fu moves in um, perhaps not one of the kind of more naturalistic uh, episodes of Steptoe. Um, no. But, uh, yeah, and of course, Ecky Thump, yes, yes. Was this around about the time that Fu Manchus came out as well? There was some Fu Manchu, there were sort of repeats. Yeah, there were a lot of repeats of Fu Manchu at the time, but of course there was... No. I'm talking about the Trebor Fu Manchu. Oh, sorry. Oh, thank you for having me. It was yeah. spelled C-H-E-W oh, at the end. Ah. Mm. And, of course, there was Kung Fu by David Carradine. David, I was going to say, David Kwai Kang Chain. That was a fucking cowboy thing. That was so disappointing. Yeah. Snatch the pebble from my hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And this was the time when every comedian on the telly was cutting ping pong balls in half and shoving them into their eye sockets. That's right. Snatch the pebble. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Kung Fu was the absolute rage of the playground at the time. <laughs> And, I, and like everybody else, I was just fascinated by it, even though I was too young to actually see any of it. Well, the thing is, yeah, I lived in a violent, you know, I was, in, I was 12, and it was a violent playground I was in. And yeah, mm. it was kind of all the rage, but no one was actually performing Kung Fu as such. It was all like headlocks and kicks in the bollocks. Yeah. Basically, that was still the tried and trusted methods of uh, fisticuffs or whatever. Kids on our playground would just throw themselves at each other doing flying kicks and stuff. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, missing each other. I mean, not hmm. deliberately, but yeah. No, it's, it was just the old method. I mean, but you couldn't really have a song called Everyone Was Kicking Each Other in the Bollocks, you know, wouldn't no. have the same <laughs> cachet, but that's what was actually happening, I tell you, you know. Yeah, song by uh, John Thor. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I remember every weekend I'd crash around my nonna and grandpa's in the Meadows. And every Sunday morning, me and my grandpa would walk up Arkwright Street, which is a big, long street that connected the train station to Trent Bridge, for the sole purpose of uh, me getting me comics for the week from this massive newspaper stall in the train station. And every time we went past one particular shop, I'd beg my grandpa to take me in there. And he'd look at me as if I'd gone out and, and get really confused confused and say oh no 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 you can't go in there you're not old enough and i get really upset and one time after months of this he just stopped and he he asked me why i wanted to go into that shop and i pointed up at the sign and said look grandpa martial arts and he just pissed himself laughing <laughs> and he wouldn't tell me why and a few years later i went past that shop again and i realized it actually said marital aids it was a fucking sex shop. And my grandpa was just so confused why I wanted to go into a sex shop. I mean, thank fuck he didn't take me in, because he'd be like, oh, God, look at these crap nunchucks, grandpa. Where's the chain holding them together? I mean, there was a Chinese restaurant next to it, and I'd always duck behind me grandpa, because I was scared of it, as mentioned before. Uh, just want to point out, I wasn't scared of Chinese people. I was just scared of big writing, and more importantly, big Chinese writing. 
writing that I didn't understand. Yeah. I was terrified that I'd be dragged in there and they'd hold up big fucking placards with Chinese writing on it, which would have absolutely terrified me. Yeah. Well, uh... <laughs> And also, come to think of it, next door to that, on the other side, there was a barber shop and it had a massive anti-abortion poster in the window with a photo of what I thought at the time was a bin filled with dead babies and all blood. Uh-huh. It must have been a load of dolls in a bin with loads of fake blood. Mm. I think, I hope. Great. Ockright Street was terrifying, man. It does sound it, yeah, yeah. But anyway, I remember being in the playground and a mate telling me that someone had made a song called Kung Fu Fighting. <laughs> and I immediately realised that this had to be the greatest record ever. And when I heard it, fucking hell, it was. Because this song is fucking brilliant. Yeah. Mm. My first introduction to funk, and, you know, teaming funk and kung fu was a stroke of absolute genius. 17 years before the Wu-Tang Clan, let's remember. Mm. Yeah, from the motion picture bollocks of the dragon yes. no obviously look i love this record like everybody yeah. else does. how can or, you not or at least everybody below the rank of blue belt <laughs> this isn't the best performance of it oh no oh no <laughs> as i'm the fact that he's got the top of the pops orchestra backing him up mm. and a distinct lack of you know what i mean he completely muffs the opening line that's the weird thing yes. i don't know if he can't properly hear the top of the pops orchestra mm. lucky man or if he's just not concentrating but he comes in a beat and a half late yeah expert timing indeed eh? <laughs> <laughs> and you just think how do you not remember how to sing the song kung fu fighting mm. how many times in the last year have you had to sing this song <laughs> it's like if you were locked in a room for nine months with the same song playing over and over again through a speaker in the ceiling and then when you got out you're telling someone about it and they said oh my god what was the song and you said i can't remember it that's the equivalent of carl douglas in mm. december 1974 forgetting how to sing kung fu fighting we can talk about carl douglas fucking up the timing of his own song but come on now the top of the pops orchestra are to blame because they have desecrated this song in a manner very similar to the opening of a kung fu film where the baddies go to a rival school give everyone a pan in and then rip the school sign off the wall break it over the knee and throw it down in contempt <laughs> they should have made a film where carl douglas swears revenge on the top of the pops orchestra culminating with johnny pearson at home in his cardigan and slippers and carl <laughs> douglas just bursts through the wall and says you have offended my family and you have offended pie records and just <laughs> kicks the fucking <laughs> shit out of him <laughs> i'd pay to see yeah, that i would pay to watch him chopping them up and chopping them mm. down <laughs> and aside from anything else there shouldn't be a top of the pops orchestra he shouldn't have a microphone he obviously should be miming it yes to somebody else's voice out of sync yes <laughs> some jobbing actor yeah, exactly oh that's what i used to love about the wu-tang clan all those samples of fucking middle-aged jobbing actors in the 70s <laughs> yeah <laughs> hey daddy you want to fight <laughs> the thing about cole douglas you're not going to want to select him in street fighter 2 are you no uh, he's no, a big yeah. chunky lumbering yeah of a lad who he only appears to have two moves um, one of which is flailing about with his arms as if his picnic's just been ruined by a swarm of wasps yeah. and his other move is the kick up from the hip which makes him look like he's trying to fend off bummer dog you know Chun-Li <laughs> and Dalsim are going to have no problems sorting him out mm. and flared kung fu trousers won't work man you're going to put some proper drag on your kicks mm. 
It's like when you see footage of fighting on the terraces from the mid-70s and people are kicking the shit out of each other, but they've got flares on and really heavy, clumpy boots. And it's like, yeah. well, that can't have hurt that much <clears throat> because of the drag. Yeah, and they're trying to <clears throat> kick each other in the stomach. and But you could just grab the flares. Yes. And then you got that unseemly thing where after you've grabbed the leg of someone who's trying to kick you in the nuts, you just start walking backwards and they hop along for a bit and then fall over. Yes. That was always my best uh, art of self-defense. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that now because if some, some, like an angry B.A. Robertson confronts me, you'll, <laughs> you'll know my trick. It is a recreation of the original Top of the Pops performance, but there's no Bidu this time, which is a bit of a shame. I think, I think he realised... I think he's well out of it, to be honest. But, mm. I mean, even a crap version of Kung Fu Fighting is still a fucking towering landmark over this episode. It mm. is, it is, yeah. It also reminds me a little bit of, um, was it Willie Hutch Brothers Gonna Work It Out? It's got a yes. very similar feel to this. And that's a Stone Soul classic. Yeah, and of course, Cole Douglas was on the Christmas Day Top of the Pulse, wasn't he, Taylor? Uh, yes, he was. I was, I was going to say, first of all, another nice thing about this is it provides a little reminder to us white people that everybody else does things that are maybe a little bit racially insensitive as well yes you know both on the grand scale and on this sort of blundering well-meaning silly bugger Mm. scale you know usually doesn't come with the same baggage often doesn't have the same consequences but it happens everywhere all the time Mm. because that initial impulsive response to difference is a human flaw it's not genetically specific Mm. so i mean this record is not kanye west no um (laughs) instead it was driving me mad trying to think of what kanye west's permanent fixed facial expression reminded me of and i realized it's homer simpson when he's got a thought bubble (laughs) rolling tumbleweed um but yeah carl is no yay uh oriental riff notwithstanding Mm. it's not even hey pedro by chuck berry if you know that which is a great record musically but it's all done in like speedy gonzalez type mexican accents you know Mm. my buggy has a hole and all that stuff which he obviously thinks is fucking hilarious Mm. um at least carl is trying to be nice and trying to show his appreciation for another culture that he obviously thinks is fucking wicked Mm. so it's an ancient chinese art yeah he's trying to do a nice thing here by making out that he lives in a pagoda with a massive gong inside it with a pet panda called Confucius. (laughs) But yes, on the Christmas Day episode, hosted by Savile in a toga and Santa suit, Christmas Day episode, yet the one of these two we chose not to do, Mm. Carl makes a guest appearance in between songs, just chilling out. He doesn't sing, he's just hanging with Sir Jim, OBE, KCSG. Um, (laughs) He's just there to say hi, yeah. except it's more like hi yeah because he does the he does the ah so me so veli soli voice. Oh, yeah. Egged on yeah. by Savile, it has to be. Yeah, said. very much to Savile's delight, mm. and then he wiggles his tongue when Jimmy introduces the three degrees. Mm. And the last lady, Glenn Limpole's turned up. Listen, Glenn, <laughs> there's a question I've got to ask you now. I got hoodie, my name, hoodie, hoodie, yeah, ah so. Merry Christmas to you. Oh, ah, goodness gracious. 
<laughs> have experienced more edifying 15-second periods, <laughs> but at least he hasn't taped back the corners of his eyes. Yes. So we can at least be thankful for that. I mean, this was the time in any film or programme, you know, no Chinese person could come on screen without an enormous gong bashing. Yeah. Know? Yes. Did you ever do Kung Fu or any ancient Chinese art when you were younger? Once. <laughs> I think the community centre was having Kung yeah. Fu classes and I went once. Yeah, and yeah. then my parents realised how much they'd have to lay out for kits and belts and everything. And yeah, it kind of ended there for me. Yeah, I, I was a little bit too young. But I know that as a kid, yeah, I did go to judo lessons for a couple of weeks in Kidderman's wow. Civic Centre. And we didn't have the kit or the, the white suit. We were just doing it in like tracksuits and stuff. The gi. Is that what it's called? The gi, yeah. Okay, shows what I fucking know. It was just flopping around on crash mats in a big echoing brick room, you know. Mm. And I decided I had better things to do with my days off. The main thing I remember about it, this must have been the very early 80s, because I remember a kid there telling me about his uncle, who apparently looked so much like John Lennon, that on the morning after John Lennon was killed, he went into a shop and a lady saw him and screamed. (laughs) As if not only had she been visited by the ghost of John Lennon, but that ghost had chosen to haunt not Liverpool... Not London, not Weybridge, (laughs) not even New York City, but Kidderminster. A town (laughs) that the local boomers always insisted to me as a kid that the Beatles had once played. And of course they were there watching. And yet Mm. no record of such a gig appears on any Beatles concert calendar. So if their ghostly apparitions had already graced the town once, it's not so unbelievable that one of them might do it again. Mm, mm. So, yeah, yeah. The only um, connection I've got really is just um, a friend of a friend who actually reached adulthood by this point, but he kind of you know, he went through, he did the whole thing, he completed the whole Kung Fu thing, he got his kind of black belt, and he went, and he was from Scotland, and he went back up to his family place in Glasgow and told his dad, you know, very proudly, he says, Yeah, I'm black belt now in Kung Fu, yeah, what do you think of that? His dad said, oh, Is that right? And he took him out the backyard and beat the crap out of him. <laughs> so that's what I think no. of Kung Fu, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but no this song one of the two songs that instantly makes me happy whenever it comes on along with my guy by mary wells mm. yeah oh yeah. fucking love it it was my karaoke standby song for a very long time mm. and it's on the shortlist for my funeral songs as well kung fu fighting yes cool why not it's also responsible for one of the best dreams i ever had when i dreamt that do they know it's christmas was made in 1974 instead of 1984 and i was at home watching the video and just thinking oh my god this is the greatest thing ever (laughs) and sadly the only thing i can remember of the whole video is a shot of carl douglas in his kung fu rig out waving his hands around and then smashing a plank of wood with the word hunger on it (laughs) which was being held by two of the Wombles. <laughs> oh, and that's so. Right. Come on, chaps. Do they know it's Christmas? Written by Chinny Chap instead of Yuri yeah, Goldoff. Who's singing what? Come on, I'm throwing that in mm. there. I've had a bit of a mm. think about it, and I think it's Christmas time, and there's no need to be afraid. I think it should be the person who should have sung it in 1984, but couldn't. Bowie. Mm. Yeah, he was lined up to sing it, but he couldn't get away from New York. Christmas time. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So okay, that's out of the way. In this world of plenty, that bit, the boy George bit. Who's doing that? I don't know. Brian Ferry. Oh, Brian Ferry it could work. Or Johnny Nash. Yeah, maybe yeah, yeah. Johnny Nash in. I'd um, throw Mark Bowling a bone, get him back in. Yeah. I'd have him Why for that. Not? I suppose so, yeah. 
Yeah. But say a prayer, pray for the other one. So George Michael Bay. Someone soulful. Yeah, this is where the energy goes up. Mm. So, uh, um, uh, Les Gray. Oh, or Dave Bartram. <laughs> yeah. But there's a world outside your window and it's a world of dread and fear. Obviously, Elton John, mm. but then Judge Dredd comes in to do the dread and fear bit with a massive wink to the camera. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> The Christmas bells that ring there are the clanging chimes of doom. Surely Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. And obviously the key line, yes. well, tonight, thank God it's them instead of you, the dad line. I can't think of anyone but Noddy Holder. Noddy Holder, absolutely. Oh, no. Steve Priest. Oh! <laughs> oh, fucking hell, yeah. Well, tonight, thank God it's them. Yes, yeah, instead, instead of you. you. With a little point yeah. into the camera. Ooh! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you're bunging Roy Wood, sweet hmm. sensation. Cole Douglas, show what he wanted. Glitter band on drums and Gary Glitter all the way through going, hey, at the end of every line. <laughs> yeah. Ensuring it can never be played again. <laughs> <laughs> How much better would that be? Oh, though? miles better. And it'd have had a bit of a sort of glam stomp to it as well. Yes. <laughs> You can imagine, yeah. Connie, Alvin pointing at us. Yes, right. Yeah, shaming us into donating mm. money. Are we out of our tiny minds? Yeah. So, Kung Fu fighting would stay at number one for three weeks in the UK before giving way to Annie's song, fuck off. And then got to number one for two weeks in America and, as we all know, became the Ramadan number one of 1974, eventually selling an estimated 11 million copies worldwide. Wow. That's not a bad day's work, is it? Mm. Oh, have you got your notebook on you? Oh, here's a shitload of money for the rest of your life, mate. (laughs) The (laughs) follow-up, Dance the Kung Fu, got to number 35 a couple of weeks ago. And he'd have one more hit in 1978 when Run Back got to number 25 in January of that month. Dance the Kung Fu's a fucking tune, I don't care, man. We often bring it up. Yeah, you can learn a lesson from it, though, can't you? Which is, Mm. if you have a novelty hit and you're lucky enough that people want another thing from you Mm. they may want you to repeat the form but not necessarily the content what it makes Mm. you think of you know when you see twins and one of them is Mm. always distinctly better looking than the other even though they're supposed to be identical that's sort Mm. of the thing with carl douglas records isn't it dance the kung fu is almost indistinguishable from this but it's just nowhere near as good maybe you should have gone for savate or whatever it's called the french one yeah because it's got exactly the same comedy sketch set in chinese restaurant vibe to this one and the same mock eastern sounds on the record Mm. because he turned up to sing it in the same kung fu outfit with kung fu fighting written on his headband right the uh, one of the least necessary headbands in world history you know what i mean (laughs) it doesn't feel like just artistic continuity it feels like you just think what is it with this bloke and western pop cultural cliches about china it's like he Mm. was trapped in this world unable to get out it's like if the crazy world of arthur brown had wanted to do a follow-up record about feeding their rabbit Mm. but they just weren't able to do it you know you are compelled to continue on your path Mm. maybe he could have done a song about origami or bonsai (laughs) 
1998, Daz Samson and his dance band Bus Stop teamed up with Douglas for a cover of Kung Fu Fighting, a single I chose not to listen to then and still refuse to now, which got to number eight in June of that year. And of course, one of Simon's favourite questions is, which football manager is mentioned in a number one single of the 70s? And of course, it's little Sammy Chung. Oh, so. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Carl Douglas and Kung Fu Fighting. And now we have a somber song. This is Seasons in the Sun. And Terry Jacks, get off with it, please. Goodbye to you, my trusted friend. Travis! Now bristling with microphones, with Edmunds behind him blowing a curly paper whistle thing, tells the kids it's time for a piss break as he introduces Seasons in the Sun by Terry Jacks. We've already covered Terry Jacks, who was born in Winnipeg in 1944, and this single, because hey, what other Terry Jacks singles are we going to come across in chart music number nine? Last year, he was doing a production job for the Beach Boys, who were pissing about with an English-language version of the 1962 Jacques Brel song Le Moribond before presumably having an argument started by Mike Love (laughs) and giving up on it. Terry, spotting an opportunity, decided to fiddle about with the lyrics even more and change the sentiment from Go on, you cunts, have a good piss up at my funeral. (laughs) It's not like I give a shit anyway. To, oh no, I'm dying. Goodbye, everyone. One, and it spent three weeks at number one in America in March. On the back of its American success, it smashed into the charts at number 20 in late March as the highest new entry, and then soared 17 places to number three. And a week later, it had Billy Don't Be a Hero on the run. But the fun didn't last, because the bastards ran too fast. <laughs> so, here's a rerun of his performance, recorded for the BBC on the West German Top and Poppen Music Laden, who have thoughtfully changed their name to Music Shop so as not to enrage any seven days jankers type grandparents with German words. <laughs> Yeah, David, we've already done it. As we've established, mm. you thought Terry Jacks was actually genuinely dying, he- and the moment the song stopped being number one, he'd cock it. Yeah. And here he is. Here he is still alive. What a cod. I mean, up to, I mean, the person that told that, didn't it? oddly enough, we mentioned John Lennon earlier on. I had a mate called John Lennon, coincidentally. Um, oh, no. <laughs> in fact, I knew this, my mate John Lennon before the actual Beatles' John Lennon. But anyway, he's a kind of a bit of a spoofer. I mean, you know, and he, he was the one that put me on to this, that he was actually dying. And I, yeah, oh. I believed it. He, he was also someone that told me, you remember Frank Lampard, the West Ham player, Frank Lampard yeah. Senior, that Frank Lampard mm. Senior was blind. <laughs> <laughs> blind? He showed me this, like, you know, these bubblegum card things, and there was this kind of weird mauve thing and his eyes were shut you know and this was 
like evidence of his blind. How do you play football? And he just has a sense for the ball. You know, a bit like the old snatch the pebbles from my hand, geezer. You know, that's how I was able to beat the shit out of Kwai Kang Chain. You know, that he had a kind of a sort of bat-like sense, you know, for the for the ball and for like was a, such a strong positional sense. He didn't need his sight, you know. Oh. And um, a right fool I made of myself when I actually was we asked to write an essay about which person do you find the most inspirational? And I said Frank Lampard. Oh, no. who, you know, I put so, so this whole essay. My inspirational person is Frank Lampard, who despite his oh, blindness no. <laughs> played sort of 200 games for West Ham, you know. And uh, yeah, I got roundly mocked for that. Yeah. Oh. There you go. We'll explain a few of his tackles. Mm. <laughs> I mean, this is supposed to be heart-wrenching and all that. Yes. But really, this song, it's like, hello, mother, hello, father, here yeah. I am in Camp Granada. You know what I mean? <laughs> and of course, the original Jacques Brel song is not like this at no. all. You, it's another Viva Espana job, isn't it? Yeah, you have this problem wherever you find translated Jack Brel songs because mm. so many of them were translated to death. For example, Numa Keep Pat is one of the most uncomfortably intense and emotionally desperate songs of all time, right? It's mm. about helplessness and terror and impotence in every sense. Um, right. But it's most widely known in its English version as If You Go Away, mm. so that the lines, Don't leave me, we must forget all that is gone can be forgotten, are translated as, if you go away on this summer's day, you might as well take the sun away. Oh. Just completely bland and opposed to everything Jacques Brel ever tried to achieve. Mm. Um, and the lyrics to this song, Le Moribond, in the original are very different because, yeah, it's about a, a sort of bitter, unfilled man trying to come to terms with his imminent death mm. with a chorus that goes... I want them to sing and dance as as they dump me down the hole, you know. Mm. And and a verse addressing the man back home who's been fucking his wife. He says, goodbye, Antoine, I never liked you. And it, it kills me to die today while you are still so alive, mm. as robust as boredom. But because you were her lover, I know you will take care of my wife. Mm. Um now, I'm not sure that version could ever have been covered by Westlife. No. Because um, <laughs> it's too fucking good and complex. Um, so instead, here, that verse becomes, Goodbye, Michelle, my little one. Mm. You gave me love and helped me find the sun. Oh. Basically, almost all of these old pseudo-translations of Jacques Brel are an abomination. And it's worse than not translating them at all because the lyrics would actually be more stimulating in a language that you didn't understand. Mm. The big exception being the standard translation of, of Jackie, the Mort Schumann translation, which everybody knows, which mm. is brilliant and completely in the spirit of the original. Although, oddly enough, the person who did the best Braille translations was Momus, whose right. own songs impressed me less as an adult than they did as an overall teenager, but whose Braille EP has what are probably simultaneously the most imaginative and the most tonally accurate translations of, of those songs. It's really, really very good indeed. Mm. Um, it's one of the first mm. things he ever did, mm. and which I don't think he ever topped. But this, of course, is a song which underwent further rewrites in its <laughs> turn in uh, playgrounds indeed. and football terraces, which may have even further disconnected it from reality because looking at Terry Jacks, I think it's a fair bet that while this bloke may well have had joy 
and fun. Mm. Uh, he never had Millwall on the run. No. No. <laughs> uh, I, although I can't comment on his level of experience re-flicking bogeys at the sun. But, um, I'm sure it's all in his autobiography, jacking off. It's the inverse of what Eric Thompson did with the Magic Roundabout, yeah. where you know, it just took these Serge Dano originals and actually sort of converted them into something that was probably actually quite decent and watchable, you know, mm. turning yeah. Dougal into Tony Hancock, basically. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's the inverse of that, I guess. It would have been better if they'd left Dougal's name as Bollocks, which it was in the original. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've just remembered. I think this is the only song that I've ever requested to be played on the radio. Really? I asked my mum what what her favourite song was, and she said this. And I said, "Well, I'm going to write on a postcard and get it played for you on Radio Nottingham, dear BBC Radio Nottingham. Can you please play Seasons in the Sun by Terry Jacks for my mum?" And I gave it to my mum, and she looked at it, and she, she just said, "Oh, Alan, your handwriting's fucking awful." <laughs> she just lobbed it in the bin. <laughs> oh God. You got a feel for him, though, haven't you? In his terrible war that he's had, that he, <laughs> he's seen the awful flying. You know mm. what the crimson confetti they, the men at the front call that, <laughs> and now he's caught a whoopsie that's made his hair curl. And <laughs> worst of all, he has to spend his dying moments immersed in his own treacly cornball thoughts. Mm. You wouldn't wish that on Kaiser Bill. No, but the thing that I really don't like is. The upward key change at the end. Oh, oh yes. God, yeah, yeah. This is presumably somehow meant to represent the final collapse and surrender to death. Mm, and the rising of the soul to heaven. Yes, this is this is the thing. Uh, they should have done a downward key change. Yes. And a gradual slowing down and bringing some phasing <laughs> and echo. Yes. In the last few seconds and some before it crackling flames and, <laughs> and cackling demons. Yes, because as it is, this sudden fucking breezy uplift sounds mm. horribly like we're meant to think he's passed through the clouds and yeah emerged. like the opening credits of highway to heaven yeah outside the pearly gates mm. never quite understood why the entrance to heaven would be in the borough of croydon yes god moves in <laughs> mysterious i do agree but i think if you put this to terry jacks he would have kind of said suggestion noted and uh, stuck with the uh, you know upward rising cause yeah, that's why he's a cunt <laughs> i mean this salvation is not an outcome that mm. brell's more oh, no, 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 been anticipating yeah. i tell you that and it just makes me think hang on if you're going to end this song in eternal paradise soon to be joined by all the people to whom you've just bid goodbye yeah what the fuck are you complaining about yeah mm. and why have mm. you then made me listen to your belly aching mm. which is in fact the question i'd ask all religious true believers to be honest <laughs> like if you're so convinced of your eternal salvation what's the fucking problem why the long face yeah this yeah. of course being the reason why suicide was made a mortal sin in Christianity. Because there's no mention of suicide in the Bible, but mm. a few years later, when people noticed that life was a rack of shit, mm. and, uh, <laughs> you know, you're probably going to die of scrofula or syphilis at the age of 26 anyway mm. in those days, or some cunt in a hood with a big crucifix around his neck was going to torture you three quarters of the way to death and then throw you in a cesspit to drown because you had a mole on your left shoulder you know mm. which marked you out as spiritually unclean once that penny dropped in the middle ages people started killing themselves in huge numbers like leaping into rivers holding bibles and stuff just to cut out this miserable slog and get straight to the good bit yeah which meant no more tithes and 
a loss of social control and so the church quickly invented this entirely man-made doctrine that anyone who killed themselves was going to go to hell which was probably lucky or else the eventual success of seasons in the sun by terry jackal would have set off a quarter of the earth's population <laughs> in the year of our lord 1974 about. and yet i envy them sat now at god's right hand Instead of at Noel Edmonds' feet, like the rest of us, waiting for his sweet mercy. So, Seasons in the Sun would spend four weeks at number one before the life support was switched off by Waterloo, by ABBA. At the time, it was the biggest selling single ever by a Canadian, and it's currently the third biggest behind My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion, and Everything I Do, I Do It For You by Brian Adams. In a kayak! The follow-up was another digger, a Jacques Brel song, If You Go Away, which got to number eight in July. But that was his lot in the UK, and he eased out of the music scene in the late 70s and became an environmentalist and documentary maker. Still alive, don't you know? Oh, absolutely. Over to you for the final number, Dave. Yeah, actually, I'm a bit sad that it hasn't really been in all parts of the country a white Christmas this year, but... I'm yes. Well, it is time, unfortunately, to come to the last part of the show. Christmas. You see, I've got a fetish about microphones. I've also got a fetish about mud and tiger feet! <laughs> Travis and Edmonds, now obscured, but not obscured enough by a cluster of mic stands, share their commiserations to the parts of the country that haven't had snow this week because snow was a thing we used to have in midwinter quite a bit. While Edmonds dumps fake snow on his partner, Travis tells us he has a fetish about microphones and a fetish about the final act of the episode, mud and tiger feet. We've already covered the former Carl Shulton hippies who were dropped by CBS in 1970, went three years without a deal and were picked up by Rack last year, who then straddled the glam and rock and roll revival trains and immediately scored three top 20 hits. This single, the follow-up to Dynamite, which got to number four on two non-consecutive weeks in November of 1973, was selected as their next single on the basis that producer Mickey Most liked the title. They were ushered into the top of the pop studio before it was even released, and the world was introduced to the mud rocker, the thumbs in belt loops and syncopated elbow swinging dance craze performed by their mates, and it thudded into the charts at number 10 on its first week. The following week, it soared to number one. Not only dispatching you won't find another fall like me by the new seekers, but keeping their chinny chapular stable makes the sweets from the top with Teenage Rampage. And here they are, back in the studio, to claim sole ownership of the pop scene of 1974. Because, chaps, let's not forget, they were the first band on on Christmas Day with their number one, Lonely this christmas mm. yeah 
And here they are again in the number one position in this episode. Yeah. Well, everything ends with mud sooner mm. or later. Yes. Everything and everyone. <laughs> um, so I don't know if this is hats off or hats on, right? Mm. But fucking hell, pure English beef. Yes. Like you look at this. Any one of these blokes could have been a copper. Mm. You know, not just the band, but also their henchmen who they've mm. got on stage here in that specifically 70s basic young bloke uniform of mm. dirty white plimsolls, tight faded flared jeans over completely flat arse mm. and tight white t-shirts with words on the front. Yes. They look just like those geezers who forced John Noakes up Nelson's column mm. and then later Peter Duncan up Big Ben from <laughs> which he so tragically didn't plummet. Um, <laughs> and I bet that these fellas here, whoever they are, I don't know if they're Muds Roadies or mm. just some faithful fans. They're S1Ws. Exactly. But if they don't work for the band, I bet you they did some nine-to-five job like that, which was fantastically dangerous, but mm. it never occurred to them because it was the 70s and, and nothing was safe. You know, <laughs> there'd have been steeplejacks or waltzers operators or, you know... Semtex manufacturers, mm. you know, smoking and drinking cans of long life on the job. <laughs> this was peak 1974 for me, I must yes. say, at the time. It absolutely was. And it's great. I mean, you know, and I was out there on the old parquet dance floor, you know, with thumbs and, you know, the old loops and uh, <laughs> clashing invisible antlers, you know. And obviously it's boy-to-boy action because, you know, of course. as we know, only gays talk to girls. <laughs> but, of course, they've got the gamut here, you know. So, yeah, you've got the kind of full-on machismo end of what's happening on stage right through to... Um, it is Rob, isn't it? You know, with enormous great earrings, mm. you know, representing the performative effeminacy or whatever. Yeah, yeah this, this is it. This was peak 1974. Oh, yeah. And, of course, the best thing about this song really is how odd it is, because I'm mm. with Mickey Most on this. What a title. Yes. Tiger Feet. It's one of those things that's so familiar mm. that you don't think about. Mm. But might as well go... I really love your panda knees. <laughs> like, which of us has never told our beloved, oh, I really love your bison ankles. And, I mean, but, you know, I'm not putting them down. It's like my mate says, mud are basically Dr. Feelgood before they discovered amphetamine. Ooh. Just on brown ale and neat bells drunk out of a tea mug, you know, <laughs> with a plate of triangular ham sandwiches. In fact, you wouldn't even have had to ask them about their rider, would you? It would just have been that and some <laughs> angel delight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, um, all lines of it racked out. <laughs> yeah, and a Cox's orange pippin for the fitness fanatic in the mm. back. <laughs> I, I was all right with tiger feet. I mean, you did the sort of the tiger, it was the prowl, wasn't it? I used to do the prowl across the oh. Barrack and Elmet Village Hall dance floor, you know, <laughs> impressing one and all. I think that's, that was my interpretation anyway, yeah. But you can't not love them because they are so beautifully gross and they Ooh. are indisputably the real thing it's like watching her knees up at the bus depot you yes. know what I mean? all the drivers putting on a show for the clippies help yourself yeah. to a rock hard sausage roll you know <laughs> yes. it's like, oh you oh shut up, you silly cow it's only a bit of fun you know it's that world right yes and this is a great record it's it just that it's their only great record yeah hmm. and when you listen to it and watch them perform, it's really obvious why it's their only genuinely great record. Because people who are like this, by which I mean not instinctively or naturally creative or musical, but also not hung up on their own stupid 
half-baked concepts of artistry mm. or soulfulness. They can make great records when they got people like Chinichap behind them. Yeah. But they usually don't make more than one great one because too many ducks have to be in a row. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's not quite like me standing there taking 6,000 free kicks until eventually one of them goes in the top corner because Mud themselves have got that basic level of competence and showmanship. So something was going to go right sooner rather than later. But it's interesting. All these 70s showbiz groups have got their own thing going on, their own look and feel an atmosphere so the song and the production has to work according to those rules the rules of their tiny universe and when the songs weren't coming from the band sometimes it took a while for everything to match up so that Mm. it all felt right do you know what i mean yeah um but in retrospect it's better to do it this way than spreading the magic moment over a string of really good records. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Also, if you drag out your success too long, you can convince an artiste that they are an artist, Mm. which is always a fucking disaster. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was disappointed with Lonely This Christmas because for me, I think the main appeal of Mud is that they were wholly angst-free. You know, there wasn't that... (laughs) Even with Slade, you had all that kind of, look at last night, everybody wants to know you all that kind of stuff you know mm. there was no hint of like moroseness it was absolutely full on 100% bully beef great time uh, don't worry though David here comes show waddy waddy to pick up the slide well yeah yeah but they weren't quite 100% bully beef enough for me I think they were very bentos pie mm. filling yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the only thing I don't like about them well actually there's a few things I don't like <laughs> about them, but the worst is that these are the kind of old world blokes where it's impossible to look at them without thinking about their underwear, which <laughs> I mean, it would be tomato red Y-fronts with Ooh. white trim right, yeah. and a matching vest. Mm. You know, he's got his Y-fronts with a yellow patch front left. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> he's got an egg stain on his vest on the yeah. back for some reason. Um, <laughs> And vertically striped multicoloured swimming trunks at the beach, worn <laughs> with nothing but a chain necklace and tinted specks. Mm. Or oh, St. Christopher. Yeah, that strange male physique where the legs are skinny, but the top half's like a barrel. Mm. You know, fried food and an Elvis cassette on the dashboard. And where do you go from there? <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Well, my imagination never really penetrated as far as their underpants, I must say. And I'm, I think I feel blessed by that, actually. Well, it's not yeah. a choice. Mm. No, no, exactly. I know this is it. You're, <laughs> you're compelled, you know. You're, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what an introduction to a song this this has man it's, it's one of the greats isn't it do you think they nicked it off the meters oh for sissy strut you know oh uh, yeah probably mm. they would have been aware of that wouldn't they yeah of course they would yeah i reckon you're right because i remember a few years ago right in nottingham we have goose fair yeah. absolutely loved it as a kid even as a teenager and a young adult, right up until I was about 30, wherever I was, I had to be back in Nottingham for Goose Fair. It was just that thing you had to go to. Yeah, you like Romario having it in his contract that he had to go back for the Rio Carnival every year, even if there was a game on. Yeah, exactly like that. But when I moved back to Nottingham and I started going to Goose Fair, it got really shit. All the good stuff that I loved was going in. And nowadays it's just shaking Alton Towers. <laughs> 
And I remember going a few years ago and thinking, well, I've had enough of this now, man. I, I, I'm, this is going to be my last year of going to Goose Fair. And I'm just standing there looking around and all I can hear is this fucking landfill rap that everything's blaring out. But then I found myself by the waltzers and all of a sudden it just went... I immediately changed back into a six-year-old to the point where I was looking around really frantically for me mum and dad because I felt that I'd lost them. (laughs) And it was like, oh, this is just perfect. Let this be my last experience of Goose Fair. (laughs) Thank you, Mud. You made it special for a few seconds one last time. And I'll always be grateful to you for that. I think this is one of the things that you get throughout the show, actually. You think of all of these kind of particular, whether it's sparks or whatever in the stomp you've got there or the thing here, that all of these kind of rhythmical patterns were swept away by like 4-4 and like that. And it kind of feels a shame, really, you know, but then at the same time, this sort of helps preserve them. I mean, we've already done 1972 and 1973 Christmas specials and, mm. and in the 1972 one the winning single of that episode the one either last or second to last was metal guru by t-rex mm. 1973 merry christmas everybody by slade 1974 tiger feet by mud mm. Mm, that that tells a tale doesn't it mm. a tale that in its way is also told in never too young to rock Ooh. um in which mud are really the the big stars, yeah. right? Where they stomp through the cat crept in at a lorry driver's transport calf mm. with Les using a mustard dispenser as a microphone. Right. Um, all of them dressed in Ted Pink, while a load of extras playing rival football hooligans, half of whom are supporting the red team and half <laughs> of whom are supporting the blue team. Uh, swig, nasty metal army surplus mugs of tea, the colour of monkey fur. <laughs> and they're all wearing their coats indoors because hmm. it's an incalculably miserable day Mm. just like every day on which they filmed never too young to (laughs) rock so then mud stopped playing and without their pacifying influence a mass brawl breaks out between the football fans and all the heated cabinets that say hot snacks are (laughs) flying around no sheila stiefel tragically cast as the owner of the cafe is Improving half-heartedly in the chaos uh, so mud move over to the stairs out of the fray and they run through tiger feet while dodging the flying punters mm. you know but it's the 1970s where men punching each other really hard in the face is only ever portrayed as funny yes. or <laughs> exciting um, and that's the first scene of the film um, <laughs> And later in the picture, they seem to become guerrilla fighters of some sort in a a sodden, freezing wood in Hertfordshire. Uh, I'm not really sure what's going on there because I was watching it in below freezing conditions in my flat with no heating on. So I could barely stand to look because Never Too Young to Rock is the chilliest looking film I've ever seen. And the second chilliest is Touching the Void. It's just a lot of people, you know, falling fully clothed into dirty water in wintertime on location in places where there would not have been a trailer to dry off in. Just the backseat of a Mark II Cortina and a couple of beach towels. (laughs) I was watching it in sub-zero conditions and it was almost comforting. (laughs) 
Simon Corson, Tiger Feet. We hope you've had a Botty. great Christmas week yeah, and you've thoroughly enjoyed Top of the Pops, oh. right? Really, we do. Oh, we wish you a very me. happy new year. And if it's anything like this in 75, <laughs> I shouldn't bother tuning in. Ladies and gentlemen, till the Top of the Pops 75. <laughs> See you in the new bye year. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Edmonds and Travis, now entangled in a mass of mic cables while the floor managers wobble the mic stands off camera, express the hope that we've had a great Christmas, we have a happy new year, and if 1975 is going to be anything like this, we shouldn't bother tuning in before throwing us into a reprise of Tiger Feet, with a sort of cast members joining the band in a Sunday night at the Palladium-style farewell, which includes Cole Douglas and his dancers, the characterful dad drummer of the Rubettes holding a large cone of rolled up brown paper to his mouth and walking about like Groucho Marx, members of the glitter band who give Les Gray a custard pie in the face, Edmunds clapping along gamely at the side, and finally Travis, who takes centre stage with one of the Christmas trees, which he plays like a guitar. Fucking hell fire. I mean, it's just. I mean, at least Noel Edmonds has the sort of native sense to stay on the periphery. You know, exactly. he knows which lane he belongs in. Yeah. But you just sense, you know, that Travis, you know, he's just this leering ignoramus who thinks he's entitled to be front and centre. Mm. And yet, as soon as he gets front and centre there, he senses immediately he's out of his element. You know, he yes. can't dance, he can't stay in step. He can't play a Christmas tree either. <laughs> That's right, he can't play Christmas tree guitar. And you just sense, looking at everybody else on that stage, like Les Gray, wherever, that Travis is someone who's pathologically incapable of actually having a genuinely good time. Mm. You know, and, it, and then, like I say, you can see this moment of panic. It's like, wait, you know, no, all right, yes, if, no, if we could just cut out the jostling, please. You know, yeah. just know your place, Travis. You are literally a waste of space. Mm. I mean, as pop crazed youngsters of then and now, we, we knew that there was a line drawn between the presenters and the true stars. And once again, Travis has crossed it and pissed yep. on it and then rolled about in his pissy line. Yeah, you've got this um, star studded screamful of. 1974 i mean it's all the other groups who were actually there yes in the wintry studio rather than flown in from previous episodes but obviously travis has to see center stage because mm-hmm. he's the one everyone really of wants course, to look yeah. at he's the one with natural charisma he's yes. the one where everyone really tuned in to watch a an ugly stupid man with no qualities showing off like a small boy at his own fourth birthday party yeah <laughs> you know barging professional entertainers out of the way yes to mm. pick up a fake silver Christmas tree and play it like a guitar while gurning. A visual joke so self-evidently hilarious, it demands that whoever thought of it shoves all the pop stars to the side of the stage mm. to give his mm. physical comedy stylings the the prominence that they deserve. I mean, a lot of the truly great people are people who, by rights on paper should be total wankers Mm. but miraculously pull it off somehow and it's useful to have dave lee travis around as an illustration of what that doesn't look like (laughs) and exactly as david says it's whatever you may or may not say about noel edmonds 
he's so obviously smarter than Travis, mm. if nothing else. Like, as we see here, he knows he has to keep out of this yeah. and keep a low profile and retain some dignity, at least. He's very much the mid-ewer to Travis's Bob Geldolf here. <laughs> like the, the invisible man behind the desperate, attention-seeking, immature clown mm. with the faintly nasty edge of everybody shut up and listen to me. Yeah. I mean... Uh, do they know it's Christmas time at all? It's as if Brian Moore and John Motson had run onto the pitch amongst the Liverpool players after the FA Cup final <laughs> and were taking turns to put the lid on their head before just diving into the plunge pool afterwards. <laughs> it's more like if they'd run on in stoppage time and kicked the ball in the <laughs> yes, net, yes. taking their shirt off and started whirling it around their yes. heads. <laughs> it's interesting to see who's not on that stage at the end. There's no glitter. Alvin's there, but he kind of like lingers at the back, obviously making sure that nobody touches him. Yeah, his albino keyboard player is at the front. Just exhilarated that he's still got all his teeth. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then Les Gray suddenly brandishes a cutout number one as he wipes the custard pie from his face, which is a tradition that began the year earlier, remember, with uh, Noddy yeah. Older and Wizard. And Travis, with his bow tie now fully askew, drops a meaty arm around Les Gray as he attempts to do the shadows walk, making it look like he's being drunkenly ushered from a pub before it all kicks off <laughs> it's the end of the glam era and the blokes of pop have taken over again yeah mm. yeah and they're going to be there for quite a while aren't they yeah and they're not actually going to thump you unless you say anything out of line mm. but there's always just that suggestion yeah yeah oh les gray's got a very nice tiger head belt buckle did you notice yeah it's lovely isn't it <laughs> I would wear it. You wouldn't want to be his misbehaving lad, would you? <laughs> so, Tiger Feet would spend four weeks at number one before yielding the floor to Devil Great Drive and would become the biggest selling single of 1974. The follow-up, The Cat Crept In, would get to number two for two non-consecutive weeks in April, unable to usurp seasons in the sun and Waterloo. They took Rocket to number six in August, and they'd close out the year with Lonely This Christmas as the current number one. They won 1974. Mm. When we look back on 1974, West German air, Harold Wilson twice, and mud. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and I would say that you have to admit this is arguably one of the four or five finest bands ever to come out of Carshalton Beach. <laughs> but it will never happen again. This blend of old Ted, dodgy uncle, bacon sandwich eater and teeny bop sensation yes. there is simply no route to victory for this combination anymore and that's probably a good thing but in some ways it doesn't feel like it and that pop craze youngsters closes the book on this episode of top of the pops what's on telly afterwards well bbc one kicks on with nearly three hours of el cid the 1961 film starring charlton heston and sophia loren then it's the nine o'clock news then the play dr watson and the dark water hall mystery starring edward fox as the snarf to sherlock holmes as lion o then it's a gala performance from saddler's well theater featuring stephanie and Grappelli and Nigel Kennedy and they sign off with an episode of Harry O closing down at half past midnight 
BBC Two finally gets its arse in gear with news on two, then Tony Bennett at the Royal Festival Hall, then the breaking, a five-minute film about an Arab stallion getting trained up. After that, it's a dramatisation of Alice Through the Looking Glass starring Brenda Bruce, Freddie Jones and Geoffrey Bailden, followed by In the Spirit, a gospelly songs of praise from a black church in Birmingham, then MASH, and they rammed off the night with a Gene Kelly double bill of On the Town and Singing in the Rain, closing down at half twelve. ITV has put out the news and regional news in your area and then Dot Smith cops off with a new bloke who turns out to be Mr Lucas from Are You Being Served in Crossroads. After some cartoons to see the kids off to bed, see, told ya, it's the brand new American TV film Skyway to Death where Stephanie Powers and Ross Martin and a load of other actors get trapped on a massive ski lift 9,000 feet above the ground after an explosion. <laughs> the only remaining disaster movie plot that hadn't been done yet. Yes. <laughs> These waltzers have got out of control. <laughs> Then it's the final episode of the first series of ITV's comedy hit of the year, Rising Damp. That's followed by Charlie Drake and Colin Crompton on Des O'Connor Entertains. Mm, I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> the news at 10, and they finish up with the horror series Appointment with Fear, featuring the 1957 film The Black Scorpion, where Mexico gets mithered by giant stop-motion arachnids with stingy bits hanging out of their arses, closing down at a quarter past midnight. So, boys, what are we talking about? about over the handlebars of our new rally choppers tomorrow well for me it would have been sparks most definitely mm. mud absolutely yeah. ought to have been george mccray but to be honest i was too much of a racist when i was 12 <laughs> it's always sparks it, it has to be it can only be sparks and mm. alvin stardust almost knocking his keyboard player's teeth out <laughs> what are we getting with our record tokens tomorrow tiger feet um, obviously, this town ain't big enough for both of us. But beyond that, I, I'm not 100% sure. It's the trouble is, like, you Gary Glitters and you Alvin Stardust, I felt were kind of slightly played at this point. So um, mm. I don't think I might have ventured beyond that, to be honest. Yeah. You know, there were precious things, them vouchers. Yeah, Sparks, yeah, Carl Douglas, yeah, mm. maybe, yes, George McRae, providing this particular performance had not been my only exposure to Rock Your Baby. Um, mm. And possibly yes. Tiger Feet, although... I bet it was one of those records you couldn't avoid hearing every 10 minutes when it was current. So mm. might have been able to save my pennies for the even grimmer year of 1975 that lay ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and what does this episode tell us about 1974? I just think there are the first inklings of the long, slow march of decay that's ultimately going to culminate in punk. Yeah, yeah by this point... The kids have grown tired of Mark Bolan and David Bowie and decided to only like ugly, talentless men who are almost 40 and are <laughs> either paedophiles or aren't but could pass as paedophiles or at least criminals of some stamp, you know. Like, I bet you every time there was an identity parade down the local nick with all the suspects lined up in a row, they might as well have played Tiger Feet over the speakers because that's what it would have looked like. <laughs> And that's... 
pop craze youngsters brings us to the end of this episode of chart music usual promotional flange www.chart-music.co.uk facebook.com slash chart music podcast reach out to us on twitter at chart music t-o-t-p money down the g-string patreon.com slash chart music thank you taylor parks god bless you david stubbs rock my name's al needham special thanks to ready mix concrete (laughs) (laughs) chart music association with the British Market Research Bureau and compiled by the Pop Craze Patreons, we present the Chart Music Top 40 of 2022. Number 40, Romocop. Number 39, Tyler the XXX, Privately Educated. (laughs) Inner 38, CFAX Data Blast. V. Number 37, Thatcherite Stride. Number 36, Donny Osmond. Number 35, Andy Peebles Space Cush. (laughs) Number 34, Flesh Chandelier. In at number 33, Dag Vag. Number 32, Legs and Cunning. Number 31, Singleton, Noakes, Purvis and Judd. (laughs) In 
into the top 30 and at number 30, Taylor Parks has 20 romantic moments. Yes. Number 29, Unkempt Youths in Spangles. <laughs> in at number 28, Mini Horse. <laughs> this year's number 27, this year's most lovable bisexual. <laughs> and at number 26, the Nagasaki Hellblaster. <laughs> number 25, Ass to Mouth. Number 24, Baxter Wallard and Rod. <laughs> Number 23, the worst dressed homosexual in the Castro. <laughs> At number 22, it's Cliffy White Boy and DJ Mr. Bronson. <laughs> and at number 21, the popular orange vegetable. <laughs> To the top 20 and at 20, Eamon Dull 11. Yep. <laughs> Number 19, the Mary Brennell Boys murder. Hmm. Number 18, Staircase of Cock. <laughs> Number 17, Skin Heady Heady. <laughs> and at number 16, Heap Big Cunts. Yes. <laughs> In at number 15 this year, Sugar Blokes. Hmm. Number 14, semiotic trousers. The number 13 of 2022, my fucking car. (laughs) At number 12, it's Jeff Sex. And at number 11, the Birmingham Piss Troll. (laughs) Oh. Into the top ten, and at number ten, Eric Smallshore of Eccles. At number nine, rock expert David Stubbs. Bogus. Number eight, the Airbnb (laughs) 52s. Number seven, the provisional (laughs) URURA. And at number six, that dog's dead now. (laughs) This year's number five. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Glitter. <laughs> Number four. Here comes Jism. Number three. The bent cunts who aren't fucking real. <laughs> Number two. Two Ronnies, one cup, which means... The number one act of 2022 by one vote. Bomber Dog. Yes, of course, had to be. My name's Al Needham, and on behalf of everyone at Chart Music, I'd just like to say, fuck off, 2022! You were shit, and we are skilled! Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs>